You're listening to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. It's time for the New Hampshire Business Update. This week, we have Bob Sanders, who's a reporter over at the New Hampshire Business Review. You can get more from them at nhbr.com. Uh, Bob is uh, filling in for Jeff Feingold, who's away visiting family on the other side of the country. And I thought it'd be a great time to uh, see what other talents they have at the Business Review. How's it going? Okay. Thanks so much for doing this. I mean, let, let's start off with uh, oil and natural gas and everything has been stealing so many headlines recently with the uh, with the conflict going on in Ukraine. And you guys actually wrote about uh, some prospects with natural gas in New Hampshire. What's going on there? Well, um, I never even heard of this before, and I do a lot of energy reporting, but there's something called renewable natural gas. Um, and it comes from waste, mainly landfill, methane. Instead of burning it and just burning, flaring it off, which they do at most landfills, um, you uh, basically use it to generate energy. Um, uh, you can do that or you can do it, you can change it into a natural gas. You mix it together with their magic formula and you can plug it right into the gas um, hmm into the gas grid, I guess you would call it, or pipeline. Um, and this is, a, this is a much bigger deal than I thought it was. I, um, you know, they talk about electric renewable and it's about 1% uh, solar and 3% wind at this point. And, you know, we're hoping to get that up. That was the 1920, fi- uh, 1920, 2020 <laughs> figures. Uh, shows how old I am. <laughs> and uh, and now uh, they're talking, there's one project that, um, that they're trying to get uh, going, Liberty is, and that mm-hmm. produces a lot of natural gas in New Hampshire. And they think that this, this uh, renewable natural gas uh, would take one of one landfill, that's the Bethlehem landfill, would make up about 4% of their entire production here in New Hampshire. Wow, so that, that's amazing. Question. I mean, to, to have something that is, A, is just recycling something that's already being created from existing waste. I mean, every town, a decent-sized town in the state, basically, is some form of, uh, of transfer station or, or dump of some sort. And, and the chances of, at least in the long term, something like this really exploding and coming down in price and putting gas in the market is really going to have an impact with regards to uh, energy independence. Right. And as as you said, I wrote this before the whole Ukraine invasion, but, um, you know, Russia ships a lot of natural gas and liquefied natural gas that is shipped to the United States and uh, and it's used for backup for electric plants. Um, And the other security is, of course, where are the end of the pipeline when the winter comes um, and it's really cold? Our natural gas has to go um, to heat homes and there's not any to do electric plants and all our electric plants not all but a large percentage the largest percentage is via natural gas and so what happens is the price jumps up during that time and if we uh if we uh were able to make some of our own you know that would that would ease things up a little bit 
Yeah, there's been this big push towards electric vehicles and all these different things that plug in to, in theory, save electricity, save uh, and greenhouse gas emissions. But you got to figure out the whole pipeline of where the energy is coming from. And if we're relying on foreign uh, foreign uh, natural gas, I mean that's that's <laughs> that defeats the whole purpose. And if we're re- recycling existing waste that would have been uh, other gases into the atmosphere, it's got to be great from a climate change perspective. Yeah, it's good for for the economy too. And this, there's a bipartisan bill that would, you know, would basically make this easier. There's a company in Hampton that does this natural gas, and uh, they got a project going that's attracting two hundred million dollars of funding. Unfortunately for New Hampshire, the project is in New Jersey because they're set up to handle this, and we're yeah. not. Yeah, I mean, what's the prospects on this being able to rolled out, be rolled out in more communities? I'd imagine that there's some uh, uh, configurations that would need to be done to existing um, uh, equipment in these plants. Yeah, it's. I mean, actually, UNH is doing this a little bit, so there is some small scale. I think uh, up in Lebanon they're doing it too, so it is starting. But this this project is huge in Bethlehem, and. Uh, they're talking about, you know, this could be 20, maybe even a quarter of our natural gas uh, in, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, who knows? You know, a lot of people make predictions, but it's something that uh, is worth looking at. Keep on watching. Are the politicians in Concord optimistic that this can be um, will be supported by the by the government? Yeah, the um, the bill went through the Senate. Um you know, to do this, uh, you know, bipartisan support. Um, and it has support from from the leadership of both parties on energy issues in the House. I I, I think this is a I, I don't see any resistance to this. That's great. I, I mean, anyway, I keep harping on it and on my on the morning show with all the coverage in the news. Anyway, we can be energy independent is amazing, and uh, especially if it's natural gas, which generally speaking is uh, at least um, at least everything that I've seen so far is a lot better for the environment with regards to once it's once it's burned that it has less of an impact on on uh, the, on the air with regards to pollution. Yeah, they're, they're talking about a double savings because you the carbon the, the when you burn uh, the flares, you, you prevent methane from going into the air. But obviously, you got the carbon dioxide from the burning. And then when they they ship it through fracking, there's always leaks and a lot of right. methane goes out that way. So both uh, if you can eliminate both of those, it really does help with global warming. Yeah, that's a funny thing to think about is as we import oil from like Saudi Arabia, Russia, all these other parts of the world like that, that gas and oil needs to get here one way or another. I mean, you figure they're burning a lot of um, a lot of oil in order to even get the fuel we're going to use into our country. So reducing that uh, time of uh, trans, uh, transmission is, is going to be great. So moving on over to uh, there's an article here called Stubborn Obstacles Remain for Non-White Borrowers in New Hampshire. I, I actually had Johnny Bassett on recently on the New England Take, which is my, my uh, other show I have here, talking about uh, zoning issues in especially centered around Manchester, which are generations-long issues in, in that part of the state. And we do broadcast down in Manchester, so it really hits close to home for our listener base here. Uh, but what's going on with some discriminatory discriminatory 
predatory lending practices? Well, this was an article put together that the Granite State News Collaborative, and it's written by my colleague Dave Solomon, who's you know, it's a telegraph and the union leader and Portsmouth Herald. And he's a veteran, uh, a report, very good one. And uh, so um, so anyway, and we're part of this collaborative and and Jeff edited this article. Um, so uh, basically, they're, they're talk, he talks about how this has been ongoing. There have been studies back in 15 and 20 that um, shows in New Hampshire there's discriminatory lending um, against, uh, well, we don't can't prove it's discriminatory, but right. whites tend to get it more than Hispanics. Now, why? What's well, what about blacks? Well, we don't we have so few blacks who are getting mortgages that we don't have enough figures to show anything. So we can't really say what the story is with that. But uh, but anyway, in terms of uh, the Latino or Latinx or or whatever the community, uh, they, they so they they had those studies that went back. It was done by legal assistance when Dan Feltz was there and he was part of it. Uh, so now there was another that the collaborative tried to put together their own study. And as you know, if you had uh, um, uh, Bassett on Johnny Bassett, he's a he's a whiz with the uh, the stats. Um, they they came up and they they showed that that um, there was a wide discrepancy between mortgage companies in terms of who who's getting the mortgages, and uh, they showed one in 2020 that TD Bank gave I think 1,400 mortgages and only two went to Hispanics, uh, and there were other other. But other places did a lot better. Um, and But even St. Mary's Bank, you know, who kind of was, came from the immigrant community and so forth, you know, came out of that whole uh, thing because they're, uh, you know, uh, you know, they're uh, not as strict of a bank. They're uh, um, a credit union. Um, they uh, they approved, which sounds really good, uh, 34 of 59 applications for Hispanics, it's fifty-seven percent approval rate, but you know, for non-Hispanics, it was it was eighty percent. So now that they, they talked to the banks, they said, well, you know, there are a lot of other factors and income and other things. Though the older studies did account for that, they did take into account income and other things. Um, one of the problems is the the collaborative got this data from something called the HMDA, which is the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. And um, and that data, uh, when you fill out those forms, you know, they 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 could get your credit score is in that data, too. But banks don't want to release that credit store. Um, they, they say it's for privacy reasons. They're worried about being hacked. But without that, it's hard to know whether there was a relationship, you know, whether you can count that out or not. It's also a liability issue for them, odds are, because they want to be able to say, we want to give money to who we want to give to and not be sued for uh, just doing whatever, doing what it is, which could be perceived, whether or not it's based on racial, uh, racial information that, um, that they're doing something that's discriminatory. 
Yeah, the the thing is, so the, if the collaborative data is right, you do have banks with with a big disparity, um, and then you have banks that are fine. And so, it makes you think that there's something going on here with it besides just, you know, well, Hispanics have didn't, you know, have the language barrier. They have the whole history of discrimination, and so forth. So, so don't blame the banks, but some banks seem to be able to to lend to them and no problem and other banks seem to have a, a much more of a problem are i guess a question i might have I, i'm skeptical when it comes to the jumping towards that they're being discriminatory i i tend to attribute or i tend to get the benefit of the doubt where um laziness or <laughs> uh the the lack of focus on class issues that we have in this country which are very severe it's it's definitely a problem with regards to that um I mean, how it's got to be so hard to prove that it is specifically re- related to race as opposed to issues when it comes to they don't want to fund certain areas of uh, of the state because the the return on investment isn't as good to be, be, because if you're putting too much mortgages in less than ideal parts of town, odds are that they don't get their money back on it. And plus, if you don't make very much money, which unfortunate fact in this country is um, it, most minority populations are in the low, lower income brackets, it, it's a really hard balance to reach. Well, that's why they they, um, they try to factor those things in in some of these and uh, some of the older studies. But the other thing, the way to test that is through testing. You have a couple go for a, a mortgage fill out, and they have the same income, same jobs, you know, just different names, and uh, and who gets the mortgages? And uh, there, but there isn't any of that going on. The banking department doesn't have the staff of it for it. Uh, legal services does have some money for testing, but they've been uh, doing it at rent for renting, mm-hmm. uh, not for mortgages. So we really don't know without that testing. Yeah, and uh, renting is definitely going to be more and more of the the thing that legal assistance and such is going to have to be dealing with because so many people rent in the state, and that's only expanding, especially with the housing crisis we have. So let's let's move over to uh, another article that you wrote uh, with regards to workers' compensation claims that didn't spike, but it seems like there's some uh, stricter rules that are causing issues. Well, um, yeah, actually, workers' comp. Uh, I went into this because you can't sue your employer. It's against you know you only have third party suits. The workers' compensation system was set up so that you couldn't sue your employer, but someone could get paid without a lot of litigation. And in New Hampshire, you get paid 60% of your income um, uh, if you can't work because of uh, workplace injury. The thing is, you have to prove it's a workplace injury. Uh, so it's pretty easy when, you know, you trip at work or, you know, you, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, you fall into a vat <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> or, you know, your what your hand gets mangled by a machine. Uh, but uh, COVID is another story. Um, now, in the beginning, uh, COVID, it was a little easier to prove that COVID was uh, um, because everybody had to be sent home, uh, stay home. And, uh, and uh, you know, so only the people who are essential were going to work. And 
there, no one was going to, a lot of people weren't going to theaters, so all that more shut down. So if you got it from, if you got COVID and you had a job like at a healthcare facility, there's a good chance that you might have uh, COVID. But, uh, and those, there were cases and we have some numbers, it was hard getting them uh, in New Hampshire. And we did talk to some people, um, but, uh, but the, the, the truth is, with all those people staying home from work, there are a lot less workplace injuries. Uh, so, so the actual, uh, you know, workers' compensation costs went down, and um, hopefully that translates into lesser costs for employers. Um, so, but we did talk to one guy um, who was featured on MUR. Uh, his name was Corey. Uh, he wasn't featured because of his workers' comp case. He was featured because um, he was, um, you know, he was in a hospital for I think a month, um, you know, barely, you know, you know, getting by. And he wanted to talk to me because he wanted to show everybody when people were doubting. And I guess they still doubt that COVID is serious. Um, so. Um, so anyway, uh, so we contacted, so we were through some attorneys, we've talked to, to him and got his case. And, um, you know, he worked in this halfway house. Um, it's actually, it sounds like it might be this small little company, but it's a multi-million dollar company. It's publicly traded, billion dollar company. It's uh, uh, publicly traded. And, uh, and everybody, his boss was getting it at work. There was an outbreak. The whole place was shut down because of COVID. Um, and, uh, and he got COVID. And, uh, and it all is nobody in his family was working. And uh, so, you know, he, he went in and said, I got it at work. And he said, well, you know, you, no, you don't. You know, you're. <laughs> and uh, so he had to get a lawyer, went in there, and he won his case. The judge said, um, uh, you know, it looks like, you know, just, you know, you can't prove that you didn't get it yeah. elsewhere, but it looks like that's the case. Yeah, COVID's, but, ra- COVID's very confusing when it comes to that because, I mean, ordinarily, you catch the flu at work, you're not uh, going to file a workman's comp-, comp claim, I'm assuming, right? So, But COVID was a pandemic that was so ex- exceedingly contagious that that must have just flipped the books on it. Yeah, so, so anyway, but uh, we, I, um, I'm actually, my computer went down the one, oh. not the one I'm talking to you in, but <laughs> another one. So I don't have the stats on my top of my head. Uh, I, well, I do remember there was a couple of thousand cases, um, more than 20, probably around 3,000. There was only 500 cases that were covered by small and uh, small employers that get, uh, that get workers comp, but a lot of employers self-insure mm-hmm. and hospitals, uh, big places do that. And, um, and, and a lot of towns and in New Hampshire, the, um, there was a lot of states that said, if you're in a hospital, you got COVID, we presume it's from work and you're going to get your workers comp. So that's a state policy. Um, New Hampshire didn't do that, but, what New Hampshire did do, what Governor Sununu did, to be more specific, is when he was rolling out those emergency orders, mm-hmm. he had one that said, if you're on the front lines of firefighter police, and you get COVID, you can presume you got workers' comp. 
And so we contacted uh, Primex, which is a, a company that does a lot of the wor uh, workers' comp for towns. They're self-insured, so that's not from the private sector um, numbers. And, uh, and they had, I don't have exact in front of me, but about 2,500 uh, uh, cases. And I think it was about close to $3 million in claims oh, wow. uh, they paid out. But, yeah, but, it's, but believe me, there's a lot more non-COVID than COVID. All right, Bob Sanders over at the New Hampshire Business Review. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, thank you. It's great to be here. You're listening to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten. We'll be right back.